You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. Good to see you guys. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. If we hadn't had a chance to meet, I'm glad that you are with us. appreciate you spending some time with us this morning. We are uh, one of three churches in the Columbia area, three Midtown churches. Our terminology is that we're a family of churches, and so we uh, help and support each other. And in fact, our downtown church uh, supports our Lexington church and our Two Notch church with lots of resources and back-of-house help so that we can engage and love the greater Columbia area, and that's what we are about. So what we do on Sunday Sundays is we meet to uh, sing together, to worship, to pray, and uh, spend most of, of our time with our Bibles open, and we just try to work through passages of Scripture. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and that by spending time studying and learning, that God actually uses that to grow us to maturity. And so we've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you want to grab a Bible, you can turn there to 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 1. We'll finish up chapter 1 today. And the, the letter uh, to the church in Corinth that we call 1 Corinthians is a, is a letter that is encouraging them to grow to maturity. This is a church that is a mess. They are a bucket of crazy, this church in Corinth. I don't know what your church background is, but basically any bad church stereotype that you've seen, they've got it going on in the city of Corinth in this church. And so we're going to take our time through this entire school year, actually, to study and learn about this church in Corinth. And while you're getting there uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'll give you a little bit of a personal update. If you don't have a Bible, there are some on the ends of the rows in a basket, and I bet a friendly person would pass that on to you. So if you want a Bible that you can follow along. Uh, personal update. So I, I told you guys who, who have, were here over the summer that I was needing to grow in getting to know our neighbors, that we had moved recently, my family, and I sort of had a bad attitude about our new neighborhood, and we were talking about mission. Remember, we were studying together over the summer, and so uh, I told you I was, we needed to do something, and so we actually threw a party last weekend, I guess it was, right before school started back for our kids. We did a backyard movie night, and uh, we printed out these little flyers, and I've got a six-year-old little girl named Sayla and a three-year-old little boy named Hunter, and we got a baby named Graham. And so Sayla and Hunter got their crayons out, and they you know, doodled on these flyers, and we prayed together, and we walked around and gave them to all our neighbors, and Sayla's our little extrovert, so she knocked on the door and invited everybody to come over to do a little backyard movie night. We made some homemade ice cream, and uh, we ended up with like 25 or 30 neighbors that came over. It was great. It went really, really well. Uh, my favorite moment, I looked over, and uh, one neighbor sitting over here was holding our baby, and I was talking to another dad from a house down the street. Courtney was talking to another mom, and all these kids were playing together, and it felt like we did it right. It was a really good first step. The, uh, the most embarrassing moment for me, though, was there's a, a family that lives across the street, uh, an Indian family. And they uh, had to just kind of come up with American names because their Hindi names were hard for Americans to pronounce. And so the dad goes by Baba. And so uh, it was my first time meeting him. And so I met Baba. And then uh, our neighbors to the left of us who just moved in from California are named Sean and Barbara. Well, Baba was going to meet Barbara. He walks up to her and he says, Baba. And she says, Barbara. To which he says, Baba. <laughs> and she says, Barbara. 
and that was it. That was their whole interaction, and I just watched it. And I knew I should help, but I was so enjoying the awkwardness that I didn't do anything. And so other than ruining any potential for them to have a friendship in the future, it was a really successful neighborhood party. So I, I tell you guys that because I know I told you to be asking me how that was going and wanted you to have that update. We'll get into 1 Corinthians here. And what we've been seeing is the first problem in this church that the Apostle Paul corrects when he writes this letter. He helped start this church, and he moved away, and he's writing this letter back to them. And the first problem that he addresses that's going on in this church is the fact that they're fighting with each other. There are all these divisions. They've formed these different teams. There's this drama and divisiveness that's happening. And the, the issue that this drama is happening around is their leaders. They've got these different leadership preferences, and they're sort of picking teams around these leaders. And they have this sense of superiority towards each other because, oh, I follow Paul. And the other people were saying, no, 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 I follow Apollos. And so we talked last week about over-elevating our preferences to the point where it becomes a divisive issue in a church. And we talked about uh, how we shouldn't elevate our preference to the point that we just become serial church hoppers and we just go from church to church. And quite ironically, some people didn't like the sermon and they left our church. And I was like, that's exactly what I was, you know what, never mind, never mind. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Carry on. So what we find today is that Paul's continuing this, this issue of their divisiveness, but he's going to address their need for humility here. And he's going to say this sense of superiority is all off. And the way that he goes about calling them to humility is by addressing our beliefs themselves and how silly our beliefs look to a watching world. And then he's going to address who these Corinthian believers were when Jesus saved them. And he's going to use both of those to try to call them into a humility and a trust in Jesus and not a sense of haughtiness or entitled uh, spirit about themselves. And so that's sort of the big idea. What we'll do is we're actually just going to work straight through this passage. And so what we'll do is we'll just read a verse or two and then we'll talk for a little bit. And then we'll read another verse or two and then we'll talk for a little bit more. And I'll hopefully have some things that are, that are worthwhile to say and add as we study. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll be in verses 18 through 31 today. So starting in verse 18. It says, For the word of the cross, or the, the message about Jesus' cross, is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. That means folks who are not followers of Jesus, not Christians, not believers in Jesus. It's complete foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. He quotes an Old Testament passage from the book of Isaiah. So he says the, the cross, the message of Jesus and his cross and his resurrection is the, is the centerpiece for Christianity. It's the central thing. It's where God revealed himself, where Jesus died for our sins, where God demonstrates his holiness and his love, his wrath and justice and mercy. It's where God defeated sin and death. But Paul says, when you come to this message of Jesus and who he was and his cross, that the world is divided into two groups. You've got people who find it to be complete crazy talk. I mean, just absolute foolishness. And then you've got, for those who know and love Jesus, a group that finds it to be beautiful and powerful. In fact, the language he uses is that it is the power of God. So I don't know if you can relate to this, but this sounds exactly right to me. This idea that the message of Jesus is either complete crazy talk or the most beautiful thing in the history of the world. 
And it all depends on your perspective as to how you see it. So I grew up in church. I don't know if you guys did. My, uh, my mom and dad were really committed. We were, we were there when the doors were open to the church building. We were there. And uh, I was one of those kids that questioned everything. I don't know if, if uh, any of you are like that also, but I was just always that, why? Why do we do this? Why do we believe that? What, how, does, how does this work? In fact, I was, uh, for a while when I was younger, I kept asking my mom what if questions. Like, hey mom, what if this happened? Or what if that happened? Eventually they had to make a family rule that was no more what if questions. That was a family rule for us because I was just killing my mom with all these inter- interrogating <laughs> questions. And I remember when I was old enough to start really thinking through the things that I was being taught in church and what my parents were telling me and the things that I had seen in the Bible, I had some real questions because it all sounds a bit wild. See? Wait, wait, you're telling me a virgin had a baby? Okay, and, and then that, that baby was God? God was a baby? God was born? Wait, God has always existed but also he was born? All right, and that when God came to the earth, he was born in an obscure, rural, Middle Eastern town, and then God just worked a job as a carpenter for most of his life? Really? Like if this is what God decided to do, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be born as a baby and I'm going to make some sweet tables. (laughs) Really? Okay. And then you're telling me that God let the people he created kill him? Seriously? What, what kind of God would do that? And then he came back to life three days later? This feels like a lot of trouble to go through. Like, is there not an easier way <laughs> to get wherever he was trying to get? And even then, after God comes back to life, he doesn't just say, okay, this is it. I'm fixing everything that's wrong here. And instead, he says, I'm going to do that later. For now, I'm just going to float up to heaven through the clouds, and I want you guys to tell everyone. So Jesus just floats up into the sky going, tell the world. (laughs) This is all a little wild. Really? Are we? This is actually what what Christians believe? And, you know, I got to tell you, uh, Christians didn't didn't help. (laughs) So I remember being in youth group, and there was this girl who was new, came to the youth group, and she uh, became a Christian. And so they had this, this party where they burned her CDs. And I just remember thinking, what are we doing? Like, they burned all of her, all of her good music, you know? <laughs> they let her keep the bad Christian stuff. And so we're just, you know, we're watching these CDs burn, and I'm just thinking, this could have been a lot easier. She could have just given them to me. Like, I, you know, she's, she's burning like Tupac and Nirvana and stuff. Like, I'm going to go buy those later. Just, get, just go ahead and give them to me. What are we doing right now? I don't understand. I don't understand. I remember in high school, I was in a bathroom, and uh, I was pulling the toilet paper, and a $20 bill came out. And I was like, this is amazing. Some beautiful person has decided to pay it forward and put a $20 bill in the toilet paper. And I bent down and I picked it up and it was a fake. And I opened it up and it said, disappointed? Question mark. You wouldn't be if you put your faith in Jesus. 
I just remember sitting there thinking, Christians are the worst. <laughs> it's just the worst. I went off to college, and uh, it was move-in day. I was moving into my dorm, which I know some of you guys just did. And there was these, the friendly group of people who were standing there who were saying, hey, we would love to help. Could we help you move in? And I found out they were just Christian organizations. They were part of a, a Christian ministry on campus. And I was like, yes, you can help me move in. That's really heavy. You carry that. This is fantastic. You know what? Good job, Christians. You're sort of redeeming yourself a little bit here. Thank you for being helpful. Well, come to find out, they were just using that as a way to get my name and my room number. They wrote it down so they could send really awkward guys two times a week to ask me questions for the whole first semester of college. And they would just come to my door and knock and then just stand there in the doorway asking me all these awkward, intrusive questions. And I finally just had to say, listen, guys, it's not you, it's me, but we got to break up. This is going nowhere, and I don't want you to do this anymore. Please don't come back. Please don't do this anymore. Finally, uh, a little while later, I was playing basketball just on campus, a pickup game, and uh, met a few guys, uh, played basketball with them the whole day, and it was a lot of fun, felt like we had a really good interaction. And then later in that week, I went to the, the student union, I had to do some studying. I walked in, and it was packed, I mean, just packed house. Everybody was there. There was nowhere to sit except for at one table. I saw some of the guys that I played basketball with. So I was like, okay, well, they were normal. I'll go sit with them. That'll be fine. So I walk across the room. Hey, good to see you guys again. Is it cool if I sit down? And they said, yeah, man, good to see you. Have a seat. So I sit down. I look over, and in front of one of them is a Bible, and it's open. And I, I seriously, I looked at him. I said, what is that? And he said, it's a Bible. I said, what are you doing with it? And he was like, I'm reading it. Why? He said, well, I'm actually, I'm actually a Christian. I uh, follow Jesus. And I just thought, but you seem so normal. But I didn't know what to do with it. It was the first time in my life that I had seen people who were my age, who at least seemed normal, who loved Jesus. This was like I had come upon a unicorn out in the wilderness that I had no idea existed. And it was actually through those friendships, I got to know those guys and got to watch them I don't even know how exactly to explain it or describe it, but just as I got to know them and asked questions and saw how they lived their lives, that God just did something to me, and Jesus went from absolute foolishness to the most beautiful human being that's ever walked the face of the planet. And all these things about the cross of Jesus went from no way, there's no way that God would do that, to the most incredible, life-giving source of strength and joy that I had ever seen. And if you're a Christian in the room then this is your story in some shape or form as well. That at some point, God just changed your mind. And you might not even be able to fully explain it, but at some point in your life, you just saw Jesus differently. Maybe it was through a conversation that you had with someone. Maybe it was through a book that you were reading. Maybe it was a, a sermon or a, a talk that you heard. But at some point, this message of the cross went from folly or foolishness and ridiculous to the most wonderful, beautiful event in all of human history where we see God being humble, being loving, being selfless, being sacrificial, giving himself, finding a way to be holy and merciful, just and gracious. It's amazing. Paul says these are the two teams, and we need to remember and recognize that the message that we claim and preach sounds like crazy talk to people. Sounds like crazy talk. And he continues on with this thought process in verse 20. It says, where is the one who's wise? 
Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So that's really wordy. But here, here's what he's doing. He's, he's making a little bit of a separation here, and he's given two categories. He's contrasting the wisdom of God with the wisdom of the world. That's what he's doing in that little section. And he brings up wisdom a bunch of times. So he says there's, this, there's a wisdom of God, and then there's a wisdom of the world. And when he's talking about wisdom, this isn't uh, intelligence. It's not intellect. It's not uh, research and study. It's not fact. That's not what he means when he says wisdom. When he says wisdom here, he's talking about rightly judging matters of life and conduct. Things like, how do I make a decision? How do I handle life? How do I make my life count? How do I live in relationships? And how do I handle career and, and friendships? That's all wisdom. He says there are two basic worldviews. They're either shaped by human wisdom or God's wisdom. And so that's a pretty vague concept. So I'll try to break it down a little bit. Uh, generally speaking, worldly wisdom, as Paul talked about in those, those few verses there, is all about success and power. Those are the end games. So worldly wisdom says you answer every question in life about how to navigate decisions and different scenarios. You just intuitively, via worldly wisdom, we answer it based on what's going to bring me success, what's going to give me power. And that this is not how the wisdom of God works. And so I'll just give you a specific example. Uh, when it comes to who you should marry, worldly wisdom says you need to either marry a successful man or a beautiful woman. That's what you're after. And if a successful man marries a beautiful woman, you've got yourself a power couple. That's how we think. You've got yourself Jay-Z and Beyonce. Did anybody go? Was it good? Was it fun? Cool. That's awesome. I'm glad they're here. That's the picture. Beautiful woman, successful man. And that's how worldly wisdom works. God's wisdom doesn't work like that at all. In fact, God's wisdom would say it's sort of irrelevant if you're successful or beautiful. What actually matters is character. That you're after someone with a godly character who loves Jesus, who has a, a giving character. And you may not make a lot of money, and you may not host a show that sells out a stadium, but you'll follow Jesus together as a couple, and that's what matters. So godly wisdom is just a completely different way of approaching life and relationships and friendships. I know some of you who are single right now are trying to wiggle off the hook of that and say, no, 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 it's not just that. It's not just character. I mean, you have to be like, be attracted to him, right? Like, isn't attraction like important? Aren't there places in the Bible where people say they're attracted to each other? Yeah, I mean, there's places in the Bible that says that, but it's not like a requirement. There's not like a verse, thou shalt be attracted to thine spouse. And to thine own spouse, be attracted. That's not in there. No. In fact, most of, most of the marriages in the Bible were arranged. So the parents just knew this is a person of, of godly character. I know their family. And so you're going to marry them. And you would just show up. And that's when you would see who you're going to marry. You're like, oh, all right. That's what you look like. Let's be married. Let's go. This is how much my parents love me. <laughs> Worldly Worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom says you need to pursue the best schools. You have to get the best education. Sacrifice everything else for the career track. God's wisdom would say, ah, maybe, but why? Why? Maybe you do get the best education, 
and you use that to protect widows and orphans for your whole life. And the world would say, that's a dead-end job. That's not success and power. It's a completely different category, the world's wisdom and God's wisdom. And what Paul's actually saying here is that there's a human wisdom that actually looks wise to the world, but to God it's foolish, and there's God's wisdom, and it looks foolish to the world. And what we do is we presuppose worldly wisdom, and then we judge the cross of Jesus by it. We presuppose what we need in life is success and power, and then we look to the cross of Jesus, and we judge God based off of whether or not we think he's going to bring us success and power. And that this is why the message of Jesus looks foolish. How could Jesus help me? He was humble. He was poor. He was obscure. He died like a criminal. Why would God do it this way? This is not when the world imagines what a God would be like, they don't imagine this. The world says, no, 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 we need a God who helps us win. We need a God who helps us achieve our goals. We need a God who helps us self-actualize and become everything that we're meant to be and be a successful, be a winner. And it is, it is, in fact, wild to contrast that with the actual story of Jesus. And there's some real questions of why in the world would God do it this way? Have y'all ever thought that? Like you zoom out enough to just think, why would God do it this way? Like of all the ways, like have you ever thought about if we translated the story of Jesus but made it into modern times? Like if Jesus was a modern day story, like somebody would come on, knock on your door, hey, I'd like to tell you about God. You say, okay, tell me about God. And I say, okay, well, uh, there was this uh, 16-year-old virgin who went to Gilbert High School, and she uh, got pregnant, but was a virgin, though, I promise. And she went on a camping trip and had a baby in the woods, and that baby's God. He was God, baby God. And when the baby uh, grew up, he worked at a car wash for most of his life. That's how he spent 30 of his 33 years of his life was washing cars. He was very good at it. He was a very good uh, car wash expert. And eventually he decided he would let everybody in on what was going on. And so one day he walked across Lake Murray. And uh, another day he was at a Carolina football game and the concession stands were closed. And so he took one guy's tailgate bratwurst and he turned it into food for the whole stadium. He fed the whole stadium. And uh, eventually he was arrested and he was uh, sentenced to death by the electric chair. And so he was executed as a, as a criminal. But he came back to life and then he went on a fishing trip with his friends. And then he, uh, as he was floating up into the sky, he said, go tell everybody. And so I just wanted to know, if you, do you want in? Do you want in on this? Does this sound good to you or no? And what Paul's saying is, For a world that loves winning and power and victory and prestige, they don't see how God could be Jesus. This doesn't make any sense. He was born in obscurity. He didn't win at anything. He didn't conquer. It's just not how it works. So Paul says it just seems like foolishness. And he gets a little more specific, a little more confrontational. Brace yourselves. Verse 22. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. So he says these were the particular issues that caused these people groups to get hung up. Jews 
didn't want Jesus, they wanted signs. Greeks didn't want Jesus, they wanted wisdom or success. Signs meaning signs or, or power, wisdom or success. So he's saying people want to determine the means by which they will come to their conclusions about God, and that's a problem. I'm going to say that again. People want to determine the means by which they come to their conclusions about God, and that that's unacceptable. So for the Greeks, they were all about wisdom, or the ability to successfully navigate through life. To the Greek mind, sophistication and philosophy were exalted pursuits. So how could a crucified man have knowledge? How can, a, how can an executed poor man offer me wisdom to better navigate a successful life? But what they're doing is they're determining the basis by which they're judging whether God's worthy or not. You and I are like the Greeks. Anytime we have a mentality that says, God, if you were real, then you must answer all of my questions. You must meet all of my mental demands. And not only must you answer all my questions, you must answer them in a way that I deem sufficient. I have to like the answers. And Paul says you can't come to God with that kind of arrogance, pointing your finger at him, saying you work for me and you answer to me. And he says the Jews wanted signs or power. In their history, uh, God's people, the, the Jewish nation, they'd been attacked and enslaved and humiliated and oppressed. They'd been plundered and left homeless. So they wanted God to come and crush their enemies and liberate them and set them up as a nation so that they could be blessed. So how could a man who was humiliated by being crucified help them at all? Their thought process was, I need the power of God to deliver me from the Roman government that is oppressing me. So a man hanging on a cross who died at the hands of the Roman government can't help me. So they said, this is foolishness. I don't want anything to do with it. A defeated man hanging on a cross can't give me what I actually need. Now, you and I are like the Jews. Anytime we say things like, I'm coming to God to save my marriage or to help my kids, keep my kids from going crazy, or I need a spiritual center that'll help me navigate my career. And then what happens is the marriage blows up or the kids go wild, the career is shot, God doesn't get rid of anxiety or depression, and all of a sudden we're not sure that God's there at all anymore. I remember early on in our days as a church, there was a guy who uh, was convinced that God had called him to be the next famous worship leader. He was going to be like a Christian celebrity worship leader, whatever that is. Problem was, nobody loved him enough to tell him he couldn't sing. So he comes around, and all of a sudden, he starts to realize he's not going to get his dream. And sure enough, within a matter of months, he's a professing atheist. God can't exist if he doesn't let me accomplish the goals and the dreams that I have. That was the thought process. And anytime you and I look at God and say, God, I'll worship you if you make me healthy or help me accomplish this goal or keep my kids from going wild or, or save my marriage. And Paul is saying here that that in and of itself is a relationship that God will not enter into because you have presupposed that you are God and that he is your servant. And God does not have relationships where he is under anyone. We don't roll out a set of standards and measure God up against them. Uh, you might be surprised to hear this, but the God who is eternally existent and knows everything disagrees with you about some things. He has some things that he knows that you don't know. 
And for us to say, here's the standard, God. Here's what I believe a God must be and be like and must do. And God, if you don't measure up to my preconceived ideas, then I will not worship you. Is not all that different from my three-year-old son deciding whether or not I'm a good father by his own criteria, such as do I give him all the treats that he wants? And it's like little three-year-old Hunter hosting a game show for who's the best dad, and the only standard is who gives out the most candy. All right, I'm not, first, I'm not going to live up to your standard. Second, I reject the standard. There's more going on with being a good dad than just candy. And I really like candy. So when we do that to God, we're not doing anything all that different. That God's not interested in trying to measure up to our standards, and then also he just rejects our standards. <laughs> so we tend to look in Scripture for things that we can't accept. This is how we approach the Bible. I'm looking for things that I can't accept. The problem is the Bible was written to show us things about us that God can't accept. We have questions like, uh, how could a loving God send people to hell? Do you know the Bible doesn't act like that's all that challenging or difficult or confusing of an issue? The issue in Scripture is, how could a holy God let any sinner into heaven? That's the confusing question. We ask, why does God let bad things happen to good people? Which I get where we're coming from, and we can talk about it. But the question in the Bible that people get hung up on is not that. It's, why does God let good things happen to bad people? And why doesn't he just squash us all right now for our defiance against him? The, qu the question from Scripture is, why is he so gracious? Why does he keep putting up with us? Why does he keep associating himself with people like us who keep blowing it? That's the standard by which God says, this is how I operate. I operate by grace. So Paul's trying to remind them of this and call them to repent of the ways that they're holding God hostage and acting like God's on their own game show. And he continues on, hang with me, verse 24. He says, but... To those who are called, meaning to those who belong to Jesus, both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He says the cross is actually wisdom. It, it is actually power. It's just not what people thought they needed. It's just not what people had set up as their standard. That at first it sounds silly, but when you look at it and when God's spirit opens your heart and mind to see it, you realize it is power and it is wisdom, but just not the way that you thought. The truth is that Jesus might make your life better by making things worse. He might make you more joyful by bringing you more sorrow. He might bring you more comfort by afflicting you. He might bring you victory by making you familiar with defeat. He might make you stronger by wounding you. He might bring you peace by calling you to step into conflict. He might bring you confidence by crushing you. He might help you accomplish your goals by removing them entirely. That Jesus will bring plot twists into your life that you might not see coming. And if your assumption is that God has to meet my standards of what I think God would do, then you'll never actually make it to God's wisdom. That if all you do is operate from the world's wisdom, then you're going to miss it. So Paul goes on in his encouragement for them to be humble. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. 
Not many were of noble birth. All right, so you might have missed it. What you just read was actually uh, first century shade. Shade has been thrown, and you might not have caught it. Here's the flow of Paul's argument, right? They're fighting and divided up and acting superior to one another. So he says, no, no, you've got it all wrong. God delights in humility, and he uses lowly things like a cross. And he says, do you want further proof that God uses foolish and lowly things? Look in the mirror. This is how God works. And they're all going, hey, wait a second. He says, you guys weren't wise. You weren't powerful. You weren't noble. They had a class system. He says, you're not, you're not upper class. You're not socially elite. You're not celebrities. Gosh, we love celebrities, don't we? And Christians are just as bad about it. Christians love, we get so excited if we hear that a celebrity is a Christian and we think, oh, now we're really gonna be respected and God's really gonna move. Oh my gosh, did you guys hear Chris Pratt's speech? He might be a Christian. Maybe, I don't know, I couldn't really tell, but I think there's a chance. And if we got Chris Pratt, then look out. Kingdom of God is advancing. And I'm telling you, if we ever get Ryan Gosling, it's over. It's over. The nation will be converted. And the problem is, while Christian celebrities are fine, it's just not how God generally operates. That fame and worldly credibility are not necessary for God to move. That our very message itself doesn't sound credible apart from God's Spirit helping us see it and perceive it. And the people that God tends to pick are not the elite and not the socially progressing and not the celebrities, but lowly, not so smart, not so great people like me and you. But God, verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are He says that God likes to mess with people. (laughs) So to mess with people who only care about appearing wise, God tends to pick people who aren't that smart to be on his team. If you want to be on God's team, you're going to have to give up the desire to appear smart all the time. To mess with people who only care about power and influence, God tends to pick people who aren't that influential. To mess with people who care about status and appearances and career trajectory, God tends to pick people who aren't that highly thought of by the world around them. And in verse 29, he's going to tell us why. Why would God do this? Why pick something like a cross? Why pick something like a church? Why do it this way? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that when we look at God, we have nothing to say like, God, look how smart and awesome we are. You sure, were, you sure did a good job picking us for your team. You know how to pick them. We are gifted and talented. It says, no, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In, uh, in Greek literature, boasting meant that which gives you the most delight, what you take pride in. It's what you trust in and, and delight in. So Odysseus boasts in his cunning. In Homer's Odyssey, Achilles boasts in his strength. So that's the idea of boasting. 
The reason that God operates this way is to draw us into humility so that our hope and identity and value wouldn't be in ourselves, but would be in Jesus, so that he would be our everything, so that we would boast in him. And he chooses foolish things like a cross in a church to accomplish this purpose in the world. Uh, let, me, uh, let me explain it a little bit differently, maybe a, a way that you wouldn't see coming. This idea that God chooses foolish things, lowly things, broken things. Sometimes uh, one of the questions that I'll get from people who uh, are, are Christians and sometimes from people that are not believers is they'll say they get really hung up on all of the things that Christians have done throughout church history. All the sin, all the wars, all the brokenness, the, the slavery, just the ways that Christians were completely off and wrong. And they'll say, uh, I'm hung up on this. I don't know how to think about it. Or they'll even say, I can't follow Jesus because of all the things that the church has done throughout you know, history. So I give you a, a way to think about that uh, really quick, and I'll tie it in at the end. First, I would say, just because somebody claims that they're a Christian doesn't mean they actually are. Right? So just because someone says they're a Christian doesn't mean they're actually on Team Jesus. Second, I would say, anytime somebody goes against Jesus' teaching, it's pretty unfair to blame Jesus for that. So like Jesus said, uh, love one another. So when people aren't loving one another, you should know he doesn't like it either. He said love one another. You actually agree with Jesus. You both think it's wrong. So don't reject Jesus when you guys are on the same team. Like, you both are looking at it saying, you guys should be loving one another. You know what I think the actual reason is? Bigger and, bigger and more beyond, uh, bigger and beyond all that. I think the biggest reason why throughout history Christians have made Jesus look bad is exactly what this passage, passage says. He just keeps recruiting messed up, broken people to be on his team. He just keeps recruiting lowly, broken busted, messed up sinners to be around him. It's actually always been a criticism of Jesus. Even when he was here on the earth, what people said is, you couldn't possibly be God because you associate with sinners. It's one of the biggest criticisms of Jesus during his time on the earth. Look at the people around him. There's no way he is who he says he is. And it remains true to this day. So I can look at the ways that Christians have blown it throughout history and I can point my finger in judgment at their sin. But the truth is, that's the very reason that I get to be around Jesus today is that he keeps welcoming broken, messed up people to follow him and to be his team and to be around him. That I'm actually a believer today because Jesus continues to welcome messed up people. He continues to take our guilt and our shame onto himself. And his reputation is worse because of who he allows to associate with him. I would actually submit it's one of the most beautiful things about Jesus, that the reason you might have rejected him, the people around him, is actually one of the reasons you might follow him. So I don't know where it strikes you today. I don't know where you're at. I don't know, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard any of this stuff, and all you agreed with was the fact that I said it was silly. All right. Maybe you've been a believer for years and years. I do want to say a word just for those of you who are not Christians. I want to invite you to something. Don't put God on your game show. <laughs> don't... Don't treat God like he has to meet your standards of what you think a God should be. Instead, I just want to invite you to have an honest prayer. Just at some point, would you go to God, it was just an honest prayer, and say, God, here's where I'm at. Here's all my beliefs. Here's all my doubts. Here's why I think I'm talking to the ceiling and not to you. That's fine. He can handle all that. And listen, if he's not there, then you haven't lost anything anyway. 
Go to God with an honest prayer. Unload everything to him. But would you end that open-ended and open-handed and say to him, but God, if you really are who the Bible says that you are, and if Jesus really is who he says that he is, would you help me to see that? Help me to see it. Help me to see why it's beautiful, because right now it seems ridiculous. Help me to see why it's amazing, because right now it sounds foolish. We'd love for you to hang out with us. We'd love for you to keep coming back on Sundays. Maybe you get some questions answered through teaching and sermons and singing and prayer. I'd love for you to hop into a life group and just watch how Christians live their lives. Maybe there's a good book that you might want to get your hands on and see if there's a Christian that would read that with you. There's all kinds of other next steps. For those of us who are Christians, we celebrate every time we take communion that Jesus welcomes broken and busted people like us. It's one of the best things about him is that he keeps letting us make him look bad. Praise him. Praise his name. This is why we boast and brag and celebrate. He's so good, he keeps letting us make him look bad. So I'm going to invite you in just a second. I'll pray for us. And we'll stand and we'll uh, sing together and we'll take communion as we remember that Jesus has died for us, that his grace is sufficient, and that he welcomes messed up people like you and I to the cross. So let's do that. Let me pray and then we'll transition and respond. Jesus, thank you um, that you bear our guilt and our shame on the cross and that you ongoingly bear our guilt and our shame as we walk alongside of you. Lord, we confess that we've damaged your reputation and that we have made you look bad. And we think it makes you even more beautiful that you would continue to associate yourself with people like us. And so would you help us to be rooted in humility? To just embrace the fact, God, that you use lowly things. That you use humble people. That gives us a chance at you using us. And so we just celebrate it. We come to you empty-handed, knowing that you are enough. And so as we, as we respond today, God, would you move, would you send your spirit to open our eyes to your beauty and goodness, particularly through the cross of Jesus. Pray that you would call people to yourself. God, for our friends who are here who don't know you, who are not Christians, I pray that you would do the same thing in their life that you did in all of our lives. That you would help us to, to see Jesus for who he really is. And we ask all of this for your glory and for our good.